This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to give you a main event preview for UFC 251's Usman versus Masvidal. We're also going to have a couple of guests stop by. Analyst and commentator Dan Hardy is here to talk about the title fights at UFC 251. We'll talk about the UFC dropping Reebok for Venom and a former Jorge Masvidal opponent, still top-ranked welterweight, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is here to do just the same. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right, we do it every Friday before the big fights. It's time now for UFC 251's Usman versus Masvidal main event preview. As I always like to do with these things, let's go through the numbers first, and then I'm going to tell you what to pay attention to. I actually did some pretty interesting, I think, research on uh, Masvidal for this one, so I'm, I, I'm curious to see what you guys think. But first things first, the records very different. They've been they they got to this place and very different paths. Jorge Masvidal, the most senior fighter in UFC history before getting a title shot, sits at 35 and 13. This will be his uh, 49th pro fight before getting a title shot. Unbelievable. Kamaru Usman just 16 and 1. Average fight time. This is kind of interesting. Kamaru Usman, 16 minutes and 40 seconds. So his average fight time is over three rounds. He's already into the fourth Masvidal under that 12 minutes and 53 seconds. Uh, they're about the same height, six foot, which is 5'11. No real big, big issue there. They're both weigh 170, but you would have to imagine on fight night, Kumaru might weigh more. Um, Kumaru with a bit of a reach advantage, not significant, but worth seeing how it might play out, I think is the way I would put it. 76 inch reach for Kumaru Usman, 74 for Jorge Masvidal. Um, they've got Usman listed as a switch hitter, which is true, although he tends to prefer orthodox. They've got Masvidal as an orthodox hitter, but I would tell you that he can fight out of Southpaw pretty well too. So that's not quite accurate in the way that they're listed on uh, some of their places. All right, strikes landed per minute. They're pretty similar. Uh, Kamar Usman, four and a half. Jorge Masvidal, 4.33. Striking accuracy, Kamar Usman, 52%. Jorge Masvidal, 47. I would say that's that sounds like there's a bit of a gap, but they're both around 50. It's about the same. Strikes absorbed, 2.17 for Kamaru, 2.94 for Masvidal. And it used to be lower for Kamaru because he doesn't do a ton of exchanging at range. He does most of it uh, with ground and pound, so there's not much of an opportunity to take a significant amount of blows. Uh, striking defense, Masvidal is just very good striking defense, 66% for him to Kamaru 60, which is also pretty good, but obviously not quite as good. And here is where the game, I think, is going to be won or lost. Per 15 minutes, Kamaru Usman lands 3.44 takedowns. Ladies and gentlemen, his last fight notwithstanding, right, Kamaru Usman lands a takedown around and then some. I am going to be very curious to see how it looks this time around. Jorge Masvidal, not bad himself, 1.7 per 15 minutes. So he's good for one every 15 minutes as well, sometimes two. Takedown accuracy, 50%. That sounds low, but Habib is less than that. Uh, Masvidal, 59. Takedown defense. Kamaru Usman has never been taken down. He has a 100% takedown defensive rate folks can't overstate how good that is we don't talk about his takedown defense it is iron clad now Masvidal is not so bad 78 percent. that's pretty high that's pretty high that's not like crazy high but that's that's good that's very good and then submission average 0.2 for Kamaru I think most of us would agree he's not much of a submission threat Masvidal a little bit more 0.4 but even then that's not typically the way he looks to finish a fight okay your last five for the champion, a win over Colby Covington, a win over Tyron Woodley, a win over Rafael Dos Anjos, a win over Demi and Maya, and then a win over Emil Mech. For Jorge Masvidal, a win over Nate Diaz, a win over Ben Askren, a win over Darren Till. Funnily enough, a loss to our guest at 2 p.m. in about 40 minutes, a loss to Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And by the way, there's no ambiguity about that one. 
obviously Masvidal has the record for the most split decision losses. Not the, ain't, ain't nothing split about that one. It was he lost handily on that one. And then prior to that, Demi and Maya right? lost to Demi and Maya. Okay, so what does this come down to? This is a different fight than what Usman was planning when he was originally going to face Gilbert Melendez. And it turns into something now where I just don't see how the wrestling of Kamaru Usman doesn't more centrally feature into the game plan. And it was interesting to me because I was like, how is he going to get it? If you look at the people who have tried to take him down, we don't have a good sample of somebody who was like a noted wrestler more recently. He's faced a few of those in his time, Masvidal, and he's had mixed success against them. But in terms of like recently, has he fought anyone recently who was kind of like that? Not exactly. The closest would be Demi and Maya, but Demi and Maya doesn't, you know, is not going to take him down the same kind of way. How do I know that? Demi and Maya, first of all, sometimes use the cage. A lot of times doesn't. Right? He would shoot an open mat. Kamaru might, but I have just seen the tape on him. He really heavily relies on the fence for assistance in that regard, number one. Number two, if Maya would shoot, dude, Jorge Masvidal had very good down blocking. Right, Not just a good sprawl, but the ability to get his hands to the mat to stop the reach, so to speak, of, Mas- or, uh, excuse me, of Maya. He was very good at that. Quick. Dropped his hips to the mat quick. Cut a corner because, by the way, when you get a, do a sprawl, it's not like doing a burpee where you go straight down and get back up. You have to do it and then get up at an angle. And he would do it every time, man, every time. He's very good at it. And what Maya would do to counter, if you guys recall, he would shoot normally, and then he would then baseball slide underneath to like grab the legs and then use his own legs to bring one of Jorge Masvidal's legs to him. Then he would clamp a hold of it and then go into some kind of single leg attack. And then he would look for the backer mount. Well, Kamar Usman's not going to do any of those things. He's not looking, he might look for the mount eventually, but he's not looking for the back. And he's not going to baseball slide underneath to wrap his legs around one of Jorge's. It's just not what's going to happen. He's never done that. So I went and I looked and I was like, well, how are people getting him down outside of this? Do you want to know what's funny about it? Maya got one like this. Maya got four on him, but one of them was like this. And then the other two people more recently to take him down were Darren Till and Ross Pearson. And you might be like, Ross Pearson, Darren Till? I mean, they're not bad fighters. They're great fighters, but they're not, they're not wrestlers. How'd they get him down? Want to know how? They caught his kicks. Maya caught one. Till caught one. Pearson caught one. They all caught him. They caught him, and then pull the leg up, and drive him backwards, sometimes into the fence, sometimes just straight on top into the canvas. Here is what, to me, a lot of this might come down to. One, how much Kamaru can pressure, how much Kamaru can get him along the fence line, what kind of success he has early, because Kamaru is the kind of guy that builds confidence with it. He doesn't let his foot off the gas either. How much can he tire Masvidal out? I'm looking forward to seeing that. But a big feature here is Masvidal has brilliant hands, but he really also at range, likes to use his kicks. He wants to keep somebody there if possible. And every time he has faced somebody who can catch it, he, they have all gone down. Do you really want to kick against a guy who wrestles as well as Kamaru Usman? Boy, isn't that a dilemma? It changes the fight a little bit for him, huh? Because we've seen other people who cannot wrestle like Kamaru, and all of them have gotten him down with it. And by the way, when they get on top, for most of them, not all of them, but for most of them, they stayed on top. It's not a wise policy, but it's also a big part of Masvidal's game. Now, he's got great hands. I I don't deny it. But if Kamaru's staying far enough away and Masvidal has to, like, blitz into him to get to him, Kamaru's crafty. He's going to see that. So you want to be able to attack at different ranges. If you can't kick because you're worried about being taken down, which is a legitimate concern, that's going to freeze things up for you a little bit, at least narrow your options. So what I'm looking for here is to what extent does Kamaru use the fence, back him up? Is there any ease with takedowns or not? And to what extent is Masvidal kicking? All these other things matter. Masvidal's ability to get up off the bottom, it matters. Masvidal's ability to stop the initial takedown, it matters. Masvidal's ability to connect with his hands, it matters. All of that stuff matters. But I don't think it matters as much as these other considerations. This fight is going to be won or lost based on Kumaru's ability to pressure backwards, 
lock up, make physical contact without too much consequence, and then get the takedown. If Masvidal aids in that process by kicking to the gut, which is a thing he loves to do, I think that will be a big mistake. Does he go to the calf kick instead? Does that slow Kamaru down? These are the things I'm looking for. This is, to me, where the fight is going to be won and lost. What range does it take place at? Who is dominating with the weapons? And does Masvidal have to adjust his weapon choice to minimize the chances of Kamaru? But if he does that, in terms of the takedowns, does it just make Kamaru easier for him to close the distance by his own fakes and feints and pushing him backwards and then getting him along the fence line? It is going to be a highly interesting contest. All right, let's do this. Let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by fight expert extraordinaire Dan Hardy. We'll talk to him about the three title fights and see what he has to say. Always good things when we talk to um, the outlaw. Luke Thomas Show. Stick around. Formula One Racing on Sirius XM. Precision, performance, and speed. The F1 Series opens Sunday. It's the Austrian Grand Prix. Pre-race coverage starts at 8 a.m. Eastern. Then go live to the track at 9 Eastern for turn-by-turn racing action. Followed by a complete post-race recap. Hear it on Dan Patrick Radio Channel 211. Or at home with Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or however you stream in the house. Another fight card is on the horizon. And Luke Thomas has one mission before the fighters meet in the cage. I want you guys to listen to this show and... I want you to be better informed as a fight fan. So he's reached out to some of the fight game's greatest minds to help give the expert analysis you deserve. That's called the quarter blood technique. You do that, a quarter blood will drop out of person's body. They'll pull back the curtain on the strategies you'll likely see, so you'll be ready for fight night. I'm going to need you to stop watching my fights and give him my game time today. It's time to go brawls deep. All right, we're back. Luke Thomas Show, 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Let's go now to the guest line. Joining us via the magic of Zoom is a talented broadcaster, analyst. Sometimes he's a fighter and hasn't been one in a little bit while, but maybe he's getting back out there. We'll see. It's uh, my friend and yours, Dan the Outlaw Hardy. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Every time we talk, I'm here always like I'm thinking about it. I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back. Does all this COVID testing that people have to do where they're getting things shoved in their brains, does it now deter you again? Uh, well, I'm going to be interested to find out how they're going to do it with me because I've had a deviated septum for about 10 years. So I know they've got to shove something up my nose and only one of my nostrils is good. So that's going to be a tough, cha- a tough challenge for them. But I'll be out in Fight Island soon. And I'm, I'll, I'll be uh, looking forward to being you know, around a live event again. I'll, I'll definitely be getting that H2 step back in there myself. I can feel it already. What card are you calling? I'll be there for the last one. I'll be doing the, uh, the Till Whittaker card. Oh, very good. Oh, that's such a great card. Real quickly, we'll get into 251 here in just a second, but I, I want to pick your brain on that one. Boy, that is such a hell of a matchup because even though Till is coming off of a great win over Kelvin Gastelum, it still seems like he's getting his feet under him after those two losses. And Whittaker, I mean, we don't even need to say exactly what he's up against. What is your sense about how that fight might look? Um. You know, I think it's going to quite suit Robert Whittaker having Darren Till in front of him because Till really likes to pressure opponents. And, and I felt I felt Robert Whittaker would look quite uncomfortable in there against uh, Israel Adesanya because he was forced to chase him. And he, he looked quite uncharacteristic charging forward and getting caught. Whereas obviously with Darren Till, he's going to pressure him up against the fence and, and force him to kind of tie box. It'll be a tie boxing match for Darren Till. He'll be trying to pick him off with that long right hook and, you know, work in the body. Um, and, and I think Whitaker's skills match up very well against it. You know, he's got that lead hook himself and he's got a great uh, high right kick that he caught Jacare with. Um, I, I think it's an exciting matchup. I, I really can't pick it. It's, I'm going to get into my research and look forward to the fight, but I, I would, I'm going to sit right on the fence as far as uh, choosing a, a winner. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. I, mean, I might be more excited for that fight than any of the one at Fight Island for the month of July. But let's get into 251. We'll start with the... Uh, main event. I was just telling folks here on the show, I went back and I looked at the Maya fight, the Till fight, and the Pearson fight. Those are the last three fights where where Masvidal was taken down. Now, Maya is a bit of a unique case, but even with him, Dan, he got at least one of his four takedowns, one of the takedowns that Till got. I think Till only got one. Pearson got two, and one of his will follow this as well. They all caught the kicks of Masvidal and then used that to like pick him up and drive him down. So how do you f- imagine that the kicks of Masvidal will play into a game plan with a guy like Kamaru, who if Till can catch a kick and take him down, 
you would imagine that Kamara might be able to as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's going to be a, a, a real problem for Masvidal. I think he's going to have to rely on his boxing and his footwork. I think he's, uh, you know, the thing with Masvidal that I think he has an advantage of, obviously experience, um, but, you know, he's, he's got that 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 knowledge. He's got that awareness of how to set traps and and, and walk people onto things. Um, and that's been evident, obviously, in the Askren fight, but also in the Till fight. You know, he, he set traps. He, he uses feints to force people to do things. And even though Kamaru Usman's fundamentally very good with his hands, and you know he's got good pressure with his boxing, it's it's still quite it's it's still quite you know it's quite elementary. You know, I mean, I don't mean that in any, any way to be insulting, but it's you know it's, it, he pushes forward and uses his boxing to get into range to utilize his best strength, which is wrestling. And I just feel like this is a it's a real firefight getting through Masvidal's uh, hands because. You know the, the the awareness that he's got of uh, of the space, and it's also we've got to remember it's the full size octagon again, so that's much more space for him to move around and use that footwork. I, I definitely do though think you know those first two rounds are going to be very telling on Masvidal because it, Usman's going to be able to get him up against the fence at some point. He's going to be able to control him there and keep thundering those body shots in like he was against Tyron Woodley. Um, and you know we don't know where Masvidal's conditioning's at based on the training camp that he that he may or may not have had. Um, so Usman, you know, has the conditioning advantage as well. Would be the assumption on my part. Um, but I think the striking is far more complex than it was against uh, Gilbert Burns. What do you mean? Well, you know, Gilbert Burns is a you know he's a powerful striker, but he's, a lot of his shots have got they're, they're big swiping shots. I mean, if you think the shot that he caught Meyer with, it was over that lead shoulder, it was the lead hook, and it, it's almost. I mean, I've been watching it back. It's almost like a ridge hand, like a traditional martial arts ridge hand. He's catching with the inside of the knuckles. Um, but the, the the timing of it is oftentimes it's very reactive. He's waiting for his opponent to come in and swiping at them, or he's stepping in with that big power kick and swiping over the top with the left hook. Mm. With, with Masvidal, he's he, there's a nuance to his game where he uses uses his footwork and he uses feints. He even uses his eye line as well, which is I can't remember many fighters that do that. Um, Anderson Silva is the only one that comes to mind when he he sold that low kick to Vitor Belfort before front kicking him in the face. There are very few fighters that use their eye line to sell a feint. And I, I see Masvidal do it firsthand when, when he was fighting Till. And it just stood out to me as something that's it's, it's such a high level of operating for, for a striker. And I think you only get that with hours and hours of play and feeling comfortable moving around in the gym. And then also having a lot of you know realistic situational fights. I mean, he's got, he's got double the amount of uh, uh, fights in his wing column than Kamaru Usman's had total. And that's not counting all of the other fights that he's no doubt had on the street in backyards and wherever <laughs> else. You know, <laughs> he's got a lot of experience in in fist fighting, and I, and I think it shows in his game. Um, to what extent is size a factor here? By, by that I mean Kamar Usman has because uh, it's not just size, right? He's got a really just quite the enviable gas tank for a guy who is built the way he is built. And I've made this point. Someone was asking me, has, did, did Masvidal's power transfer up to 170? And I would argue that it did, right? And flatlining uh, Darren Till, who's now at 185, it's pretty good evidence. And of course, he beat Cerrone, although, you know, that, that he goes back and forth between 155 and 170. But the point being is this, Kamar Usman's a guy who could make 155, and I'm not trying to be like uh, glib about it, but he would have to have something like a disease to get down to 155. It's not possible for him as a healthy adult to make it. To what extent do those two factors in your mind, um, how relevant are they? Well, I, you know, I, th I think they're very relevant in this fight, and I think they're more relevant the closer the fight uh, gets as far as range. You know, if Kamaru Usman gets this into his, into his wheelhouse, if he gets this up against the fence, uh, Masvidal's definitely going to feel that strength. He's definitely going to feel that. And, and the thing is, as well, like you said, it's not it's not just strength. It's not just physicality. There's endurance behind it as well. And we also know that he's been working with Gaethje and who else pushes a pace like that, man? So those two playing off against each other in the gym is just going to have supercharged his gas tank. So I expect him to be cranking all the way through the fight. As soon as he gets inside, he can work quite comfortably because Masvidal up against the fence is pretty much always going to be in a defensive mode. You know, the only time you've got to really worry about Masvidal is if there's a bit of space between you up against the fence and he starts cracking you with those elbows. And that's what started the combination when he head kicked Nate in, the, uh, in, in that fight. He's great with elbows off the fence, but if you, if you smother him up against the fence and you force him to continually defend, you know, he's always in that, in that defensive mindset. And, and if Usman can put him there and possibly wear him out and get him onto the floor... It's far less of a risk as it was against Gilbert Burns, who I feel would have been absolute chaos to take down and, and hold down. 
Um, so, you know, as long as Usman can get through that striking range and close it into the, the place where he can control, then strength, conditioning, size, that will all be evident. Uh, what what kind of role can Trevor Whitman play? We know he's bright, but it's just one camp. So we don't want to undersell it. We don't want to oversell it. What's What's the just right way to look at it? Well, you know, I think an educated jab is where Trevor Whitman comes in. I think he's, a, he's an excellent striking mind. I think he's, he's mainly geared towards boxing from what I've seen from his students, which is it's suitable for the modern day of MMA. You know, as you said, with, with Masvidal, you know, kicks can get caught. And aside from the low kick, I mean, I was reading some old Kung Fu books the other day, and there's actually a text that says high kicks are only for practice. In real life situations, we don't kick above the waist. And, I mean, it, it, was, it was just kind of an interesting fact for me that, it, it, that's far more relevant in MMA now. I mean, high kicks really have to be set up. So your game should be geared towards boxing and low kicks. Um, and I think that's what we see with Justin Gaethje. And I think that's what we're going to see with Kamaru Usman. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more low kicks in his game. But I think, you know, with a, with a fighter like Usman, who's he's very intelligent. He's not rushed in the way that he approaches fights. He's always very measured. He controls his opponents so well. With those kind of fighters, if you even if you've got them for a week, you know you can work with that individual. You can pass on some some philosophy, some you know some methodology, and instead of technique, it's not necessarily about technique at his stage. You could give him some some fundamentals of footwork that would help him apply his striking to to better you know better value. And Trevor Whitman, I think, could could really work wonders with him in a short period of time. I'm, I'm excited to see how he looks. To be honest, yeah, same here. All right, so we'll go to the co-main event. Dan Hardy joins us here. On the Luke Thomas show, I got to tell you, you know, listen, I, I only know a limited amount. I don't know a whole lot, but I have to tell you, sometimes I can watch UFC fights and I can more or less get, you know, I'm not saying I know the whole detail, but I can, you know, more or less get a beat on things. Oh, I can see what X and Y, or at least in some, in some, uh, you know, macro perspective, I can sort of see what they're attempting here. Man, Volkanovsky, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you have to go over his stuff with a fine tooth comb. And even then it's just one uh, Easter egg surprise. After the next, right, there's a ton of concealment. There's a lot going on. And it seemed to me, Dan, for the first three rounds, if you looked at uh, Max's output, it was basically half of what he normally lands because I think he just didn't know what was coming or going. How much can he make up that difference in six months? Let's assume he actually wasn't training over Zoom, a real training camp of some kind. Is six months enough time to make up the difference you saw the first time around? Yeah, again, I think, you know, at this level, I think it's much more of a mentality shift. I think if Max Holloway looks at that fight with open eyes, and I think if he, if he realizes, you know, how Volkanovsky was approaching him in that first fight, he'll be able to, you know, he'll be able to change some things going forward. I think Volkanovsky did a few things very well. Obviously, you know, as you said, he kept changing his rhythm. He kept using feints. He kept interrupting Max Holloway constantly. And Holloway always uses that first round to study his opponents. You know, it's first round test. Second round, he starts, sorry, first round, uh, he reads. Second round, he tests. Third, fourth, and fifth is when he really cranks. And, and he, you know, applying his stats to it, you, you can see how he goes, you know, his, his work rate inc increases as his accuracy increases. So, you know, what I'm thinking from Max Holloway is that he's, now he's, he's not had one round to study where he normally has, has enough evidence to start putting a beating on someone. He's had five rounds, and he's, he's encountered lots of different problems in those five rounds. And I also think that Max Holloway may have been expecting Volkanovski to try and close him down and get the fight to the floor where he could, you know, nullify the height advantage and use his ground and pound. So I think Holloway was kind of a little bit tentative to step forward and really start to commit. To, I mean, he kept meeting strikes on the way in. He kept punching thin air. He kept walking onto low kicks. And then there were a couple of times when Volkanovski level changed as well. I mean, I don't think he had any intention of taking him down with those takedowns. I think it was much more about altering the timing of the fight but everything was about interrupting Max Holloway and, and and not allowing him to really get started I think this time around we'll see a different Volkanovski I think he might wrestle a bit more which will allow Holloway to you know use his takedown offense and his, and his guillotine attacks but that game plan from Volkanovski was absolute gold it really is uh, it's going to be a I mean a super interesting challenge uh, let's quickly go to the uh, the uh, well the feature fight I suppose the third yeah. of the title fights this one has a little bit more of a gunfight to me written kind of all over it because Peter Yan, what fight was that I was watching? I think it was the Jimmy Rivera fight, which he won. 
But there was a couple times, especially early, when he doesn't quite have the distance figured out, and he throws these big overhands, and then he overcommits, and Rivera is able to like recenter. Maybe it was Dotson. I can't remember which one exactly. I think you called the Dotson fight. Now he won both of those fights, but it looked to me early. I was like, man, if somebody wanted to make him pay for that, and they were capable enough. That looked like a problem. Well, Aldo, you know, he is a little bit longer in the tooth, but he's quick, powerful. He might be that guy. How, how do you anticipate these two matching up? Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating match. It's, it, it's mouthwatering for a striker because they're so very different in the way they approach fights. I, I know what you're talking about with the Jimmy Rivera fight, and I've, I've watched that first round back three or four times recently. Because for the amount of times I've watched it and thought to myself he was overcommitted, he was throwing and missing, a part of me still thinks that he was doing it intentionally to open a window for Jeremy Rivera to step into. Because right at the end of the first round, he punishes him for moving in that same direction. And, and I, I was thinking about this. I, I, speak, I speak about it on, on The War Room, which is on, on my YouTube channel. It, <laughs> I think my ego would get in the way. I think I, I wouldn't be able to throw strikes to miss intentionally to create confidence in my opponent to move in a particular direction. I mean, I'll use footwork to do it, but to, to throw a miss, I mean, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're right. Maybe, you know, you're correct and, he's, and he's, he's just swinging and missing. But I feel like there's something more intentional about it because all of the rest of the time, he doesn't throw unnecessarily. I mean, if you look at the Faber fight, the pressure he kept on Uriah Faber without really doing anything speaks volumes as to as to the you know the fear that, that Uriah Faber had of actually really doing anything and he was punished every time I, I wonder whether he's got such a presence when you're in front of him that you're really unsure of what he's going to do and I think you, you kind of understand that he's operating on that very high level of being able to cut angles and create uh, you know create traps for people to walk into so people are always a little bit on edge M my, my feeling is that Aldo is going to be backed up against the fence with footwork alone and I think he's going to really feel like he needs to throw more than he more than he actually does I think Jan's going to force him to throw when he actually doesn't want to and I think he might you know he might get punished for it with good boxing I, I'm hoping we see Aldo's low kicks because that's one thing that can really negate that footwork um but but to me I mean I, I mean I, I don't know who who I was speaking to about it but he he's Peter Jan must have had about 300 boxing matches to get that master of sports credential that he's got I mean, that's, that's like, you know, that's a Lomachenko amateur career. That's, that's mm. a lot of experience against a lot of different opponents. Height, reach, styles, you know, I mean, Russia's vast. You can imagine the differences of opponent he was facing. I feel like he, he has a very, very good understanding of how to, how to manipulate someone just with his presence. And, and I just don't know how Aldo's going to deal with that because he didn't do very well with McGregor. And, and Max sort of uh, in both those fights, particularly the second one, you notice Max makes him work. And the more he works, the, the poorer like his shot selection becomes because now he's just sort of trying to fight fire with fire and he's not nearly as gifted. And uh, that's exactly what, what Peter Jan uh, uh, brings to the table. All right, real quickly, if we can, here's something I've been dying to ask you about this. You know what's funny? I follow a lot of uh, boxing coaches on social media Twitter and Instagram and the whole nine yards. And I have to tell you, maybe, at least on Twitter, I noticed it, but it's, it's obvious on, on Instagram too. Here's what I mean. Years ago, they would break down stuff and you almost never see MMA fights that they would talk about. Now, granted, right now, they're, all the boxing is trash, so they kind of have to talk about MMA. But even before that, Dan, I've noticed that they have gotten much more respect and interest, frankly, in MMA. Even Teddy Atlas saying after the Poirier Hooker fight, he's just like falling in love with it. MMA striking has just come such a long way to the point where I think even the skeptics, Dan, and those diehard curmudgeonly fuckers in boxing, even they are coming around and saying, you know what, there's something kind of here. Have you felt that as well, or am I just daydreaming? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I have felt that as well. I, I think that people are, I mean, I, I think people are realizing that there's space for everything to exist. And, and I think that, you know, the, the appreciation for mixed martial arts as a sport in itself is starting to evolve because it's becoming a sport in itself. You know, for many years, it was, it was just a variety of different martial arts all kind of clumped together. And people were trying to guess as to which the best combinations were. Now we're starting to get real defined skill sets that is mixed martial arts as its own style. You know, people being able to fight from both stances and stepping through and, and understanding the different ranges of mixed martial arts and being able to transition through without real any hesitation. 
I mean, you know, I remember my early days, my early career, people were still kind of coming in with a bit of jiu-jitsu and some kickboxing and trying to figure out the rest in between. But it was only when I was starting to see guys like, I remember the first fight, in fact, that I, it really dawned on me and it was Vito Belfort against uh, Tito Ortiz. Was that UFC Super Saturday, 41, I think it was? Something like or that, 51 yeah. 51 or, so, it was around that anyway, 40, 51, something like that. And the transitions moved so quickly that I all of a sudden I realized that this thing was taking on a, a, an entity of its own. And then you see guys like Frankie Edgar that make, you know, boxing with takedowns look, look like it's all one thing, you know, like it was taught as one thing. And now people are actually being taught that as one thing. Hmm. I think we're seeing it in the sport, you know, the young kids coming up, the, you know, the likes of, you know, Chase Hooper and Sean O'Malley, that they're just merging all of this stuff together beautifully because they've got a clear palette to start with. And I think other striking coaches out there, boxing, kickboxing, and all the other resistances that we've had, they're starting to see the beauty in it. Well, better late than never, I always say. Uh, Dan, always appreciate your insights. Travel safe. Can't wait to hear your call in the Till and Whitaker fight and enjoy the fights tomorrow, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Always good to talk to you. There he is, Dan Hardy. Luke Thomas Show, coming right back. Baseball is back. 60 games in 66 days. Opening day is July 24th. Forget about labor disputes and prorated pay. Now it's time to lace them up and win some ball games. They're going crazy! Hear every bit of breaking news and analysis leading up to the 2020 season on MLB Network Radio, Sirius 209, XM89, and the Sirius XM app. Well, let's get to this news. I would consider this good news. I don't know exactly how good it is but it's good just the same so it goes something like this the ufc has dropped reebok in favor of venom now it's not automatic right it's not exactly what that means it, it, it goes like this i got a, i got uh, the press release a little bit earlier in the week or sorry the day rather so here's what they said uh the ufc has named venom their exclusive outfitting partner. UFC, the world's premier mixed martial arts organization, today announced that Venom, the which they call the world's leading designer, marketer, and distributor of combat sports apparel and accessories, will become UFC's new exclusive global outfitting and apparel partner starting in 2021. The deal was brokered by IMG's licensing business, which exclusively represents UFC. UFC athletes will debut the new Venom-designed fight kits inside the Octagon in April of 2021. To coincide with this debut, Venom-designed apparel will be made available for sale at their various retail outlets like UFCstore.com and Venom.com, whatever. Uh, UFC's outfitting policy is administered, of course, through its promotional guidelines compliance program. Here's the interesting part. UFC will adjust the pay scale tied to its promotional guidelines compliance program, which will result in across-the-board increases for all athletes effective April 2021. Now, it should be noted, we don't know exactly what those across-the-board increases look like. They did not provide any details other than they say everyone's getting a raise. Also of note, UFC's existing outfitting and apparel partnership with Reebok, the global fitness brand, expires in March of 2021. Reebok will continue to serve as the official footwear provider of the UFC through the end of the next calendar year. So what's interesting is they'll stop wearing Reebok gear come April 1st, other than Reebok shoes. And I guess they'll do that for another year. If you go to Venom.com, they have shoes there, but it's all strictly combat sports stuff. So in other words, boxing shoes. I don't think they have wrestling shoes, but they definitely have, like, I know Lomachenko has his own uh, boxing shoes, and they have other ones, and they're all kind of garish, but there you go. UFC President Dana White said, we're pumped that Venom will be joining us, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then it goes on from there. All right, so what is the takeaway from this? I, <laughs> did we not say on this show that that was the one that people were scoffing at and you shouldn't scoff at it? I mean, here's the deal. Look, the UFC has been... And under, I, I get it. I'm not backing on them for it. Like, they have been relentlessly chasing mainstream appeal, you know, successfully in some ways. And then they've had a couple of fits and starts in others. But in general, it's been an overall very successful effort to the point that they're now on ESPN. 
They're on ESPN, and they've got you know big name sponsors. Not in the way that other leagues might, but they're still pretty good. You know, we're long past the days of corn nuts and Mickey's malt liquor, which is what you know I I can distinctly recall. Um, <laughs> you know, Mike Goldberg reading Mickey's get stung. You know, before fights, believe me, this is not a thing that I take lightly. It's a big deal. But the reality is if you're on ESPN and, you know, uh, you, you, you sort of like think about how far you've come. And at the same time, you think about what a disaster the Reebok deal was. And it was a disaster for many different reasons. But one of the reasons, and there are many, but one of them is, dude, they, fat, they, get, they partnered with somebody who just didn't know the space. They didn't know combat sports. They had no connection to the community. Nothing, man. And I've said this before, and I think you guys know that when I say this, you know I'm right about this. We can disagree about a million things. You know I'm right about this. Dude, y'all who are real fight fans, and I know the vast majority of the people listening are real fight fans, y'all can sniff out somebody who isn't a real fight fan trying to be one immediately. Immediately, immediately, it's very easy for a real fight fan to tell if somebody else isn't. And of course, Reebok's not trying to be fans per se. They're trying to just enter the market. I get it. But if you have no connection to the community and you try to enter, and there are parts about the relationship that are messed up where the kits don't look great and you're misspelling people's names and a lot of the money that was taken out of that market was never put back in. It was just one calamity after the other, and it made them look like outsiders to the strongest degree possible. Now, a lot of those feelings people just kind of let go of because it just became the norm. But Venom does not have these problems, y'all. Venom does not have the name value of a Nike. I'm not suggesting to you otherwise. But you're already on ESPN. The organization, again, they're losing the gate. But in terms of contractual revenue, the UFC makes more than it ever has in their entire existence. Why don't you go with an apparel provider that knows the space? Venom makes gloves, wraps, mouthpieces, boxing gear, cups, geese, rash guards, spats, the whole nine yards, man. They know this space. And their gear is quality. I think it looks garish, and I don't like their logo very much. I've said it before. But, y'all, they are not carpetbaggers. They know the combat sports space up and down, left to right, to the point where if you go to their website, Venom, which is spelled with a U here, .com, they have a line strictly devoted to top boxing champion Vasily Lomachenko. It's called the Loma line, and it involves two different elements. One, training gear, rash guards, shorts, you know, uh, gloves, shoes, whatever he needs to train. Plus, they've got a whole line inside of it for athleisure, which is where the new market is for money. People who wear you know, sweatpants to the bank or to the grocery store, but you still want to look halfway decent. It's called athleisure. That's where all the money is made now. And they've got that inside this one Loma line. Dude, they might be able to do partner with some kind of fighter where they get a bunch of this money. I mean, I'm, I'm inventing something, but it, it seems at least theoretically possible. Like, dude, what is the point of giving royalties to fighters on gear no one wants to buy? <laughs> right? I'm telling you, go to any MMA gym, dude. People buy venom gear in this in this market it's a trusted brand the name is a little silly the gear is for my tastes and i'm a boring you know 40 year old dad so take that for what it's worth it's a little garish for me and the logo was kind of silly but strip all that away for just a second and you've got a brand that knows the community has existing ties to the community knows how to make gear for them to wear in a leisure setting, knows how to make gear for them to wear in a training setting, and does it across all the disciplines. Folks, this is an easy call. This was an easy call. Now, how much are the raises going to be? I don't know. To my knowledge, the fighters had no say in this, which means, in principle, this deal is no better than the Reebok deal. In practice... Let's see what kind of raise they all get. I'm sure it'll be better, 
but it won't be as good as what the fighters could have negotiated for themselves had they ever gotten together. But, you know, they don't do that. So here we are. But I know everyone wanted to be like, oh, we want to we want to bathe in the veneer, you know, or rather we want to bathe in the shine of Nike. Okay. I mean, yes, it would be nice to have the third-party validation of Nike. But I have to tell you, the, the, the Reebok deal was so acrimonious and ugly. I'm happy for something a little bit more peaceful. I wish the fighters made more money, but, you know, I can't, I can't make that reality for them. But if it results in a lot less consternation, if individual UFC stars are able to get their own lines and get real royalties from it, I got to tell you, I have no problem with Venom whatsoever, and I would hope that you guys wouldn't either. Live golf on the PGA Tour rolls on this week at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Nate Lashley is the Rocket Mortgage Classic winner. Get ready for the action on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio with analysis from the likes of David Marr, Pat Perez, and Brad Faxon. Try to take the situation and put that out of your mind. Live coverage of the Rocket Mortgage Classic starts Thursday at noon Eastern. Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio, Sirius 208 XM 92, or search PGA Tour Radio on your Sirius XM app. Let's go to the phones now. Speaking of uh, Wonderboy Thompson, he joins us on the phone. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Doing good, my friend. Uh, how about yourself? Glad to, glad to be back on with you, brother. Yeah, likewise. Are you in Abu Dhabi? Where are you? I sound like I'm in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> no, um, no, you don't. I'm actually in... Uh, okay, good. I'm actually in South Carolina. just got back from the pool. We had our... Uh, Karate campers, man. They got me going crazy. Oh, I can imagine. You have a lot of rugrats you're always looking after. Well, look, man, uh, we wanted to get you on for a lot of reasons. Wanted to check in with you. So let's do that first. When is uh, Wonderboy Thompson going to make his way back to the cage? Well, hopefully here pretty soon. You know, I mean, there, you know, I'm ranked number six. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up on the title. I want to keep pushing forward. Uh, the whole COVID thing kind of slowed everybody down, especially me here at the gym. You know, we've got 750 uh, students, and we've got a lot of kids that are being raised by grandparents, and we just wanted to keep everybody safe. So, um, you know, it, it kind of held off on me competing. Uh, but as of now, everything's starting to open back up, as you know. And uh, I hear somebody fighting tomorrow, you know, if he wins the title, might be calling me out again. So that, I'm definitely excited to hear that, to be honest with you. All right, well, let's talk about that. You're the last man to defeat Jorge Masvidal, and I was just sort of talking about this. The The fight before yours with Masvidal was when he fought Demi and Maya, so those are his last two losses. And in both of those, the things kind of went from bad to worse for him in the third round after being reasonably competitive for the first two. What do you make of that? Like, is that is there a pattern there, or is that just a coincidence? I think that, I don't know. I think it's a coincidence. I mean, you know, Masvidal's game, they had to call him game bread for, uh, for a reason. The guy's always ready to go out there and do work. And that's something that, you know, fighting him, you know, somebody who has faced him, uh, was it two years ago, UFC 217, uh, 217 at MSG. You know, he's, he's the type of guy, he's a very dangerous fighter. I think he's one of the best striking in the division. Um, but what I learned from fighting him was, uh, you know, the guy, you can't break his spirits, you know, uh, I was going out there. I was piecing him up. He, um, you can't break the guy's spirits. I mean, he's got, he's got such a, a toughness about him. He takes damage very well. And, um, you know, he's knocked a whole lot of people. I can't believe he's got what 49 fights. And now he finally, he's fighting for a title fight. So hats off to the guy. It's kind of inspirational for me. I think we've touched on this before, you know, yep. me being, beating him two years ago and look at him now. He's one of the most, popular guys in the UFC getting ready to fight for the title. So I, I mean, I, I'm proud of the guy. <laughs> I am proud of the guy. Now, can he go out there and do work tomorrow? Um, I think he can, you know, he's on a winning streak, obviously, and he's got a confidence to, about him that you haven't seen before in game bread. Um, you know, he, he's just on a roll. And, you know, I didn't, I don't think anybody really saw him beating Ben Ashkin, but you saw what happened. So uh, that's what makes this game so exciting. You have no idea what's going to go, what's going to happen out there during the fight. Um, you know, he's facing a seasoned guy, a good champion. I think Usman's a great champion. And uh, even though he's the bigger fighter, you know, I, I kind of have him winning. But at the same time, better for my career is if Masvidal wins. I think I have a faster route to the title if he does. So I'm definitely rooting for him. 
Well, to be honest, the rematch between you two would be interesting, but I would say you have a decent path to the title in the following way. If you look at Kamaru, the only people he hasn't fought yet after Saturday, if he wins in the top five, I think it's just you and then that's it. Or top 10 anyway, top six, top seven, right? Like who's next in the line? He already fought Leon. At that point, he already fought uh, Colby, already fought uh, 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 Jorge, already fought RDA. Uh, you know, like you're not that far away. It's a fresh matchup in that sense, or it's an interesting rematch. Like, do you not, do you not feel like Kamaru winning and the, and the, and the fact that you guys have never locked horns before that doesn't, that doesn't help your chances. Well, to be honest with you, I have that. that I haven't even thought about that. (laughs) Uh, yeah. I mean, he's pretty much faced everybody in the top 10 just about except for me. So you know what? Either way, I'm I'm happy with both. If 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 he wins, you know, um, maybe they would want me to fight one more time before I face the title. And there's a lot of guys ahead of me. Obviously, Colby Covington, Colby Covington wants another uh, fight with him. But I thought it was such a impressive win for you know Usman that you know why would they be giving Colby a, a, a rematch? You know, but um, but even then, you know, um, Leon Edwards is on like an eight fight winning streak or something like that. So I know he's got some personal issues over London, which is why he wasn't able to make make this fight. So there's a there's a there's so many good matchups in this division, especially in the top five that I would be super interested in. Um, but yeah, Usman would be a fun fight for sure. I got mad mad respect for both of them. And what's awesome is you know they're both completely different fighters. You know they're not one the same. I mean maybe Colby Covington and Usman are are the sim- most similar in style, but. Um, uh, yeah, man, I, I, I would I would love to fight either one. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about this part of the game, which is you're an expert in kicking, right? And uh, I was uh, I, we just had Dan Hardy on. I was telling him about this. If you look at the Maya, Darren Till, and Ross Pearson fights, all three of those guys got Masvidal down from catching a kick. So you would imagine if Ross Pearson can get him down off catching a kick, Kamaru is going to have a decent chance at it as well. So to what extent do you think kicking will be part of Masvidal's game against Kamaru? I wouldn't, I wouldn't think it would be. I mean, Masvidal is such an intelligent guy, and what makes him so scary is that he's able to adapt to his opponents mid-fight. You don't see that in a whole lot of good guys, especially at the, at the, at the highest level, do that. You know, they're, they're used to just sticking to their game plan. Like, Usman's very good at sticking to his game plan, right? You never see him venture outside of it. Um, Masvidal is completely different. He just kind of goes out there and does his own thing. I think his corner maybe gives him some pointers here and there, but mostly it's just him and his, you know, ability to adapt to his opponent. And I think... You know, he's an intelligent guy. He knows he's facing a high-level wrestler. I think the kicks, kicks would probably be done maybe in the later rounds when maybe Usman is a little bit more fatigued. The guy's got a gas tank for days, so I don't, I don't see the guy getting tired, but they do slow down as the fight goes on. If it was me, I would wait until the later rounds to be able to throw those kicks off. Um, for Masvidal, he's very good with his knees. He's very good in the clinch position, and his takedown defense is fairly well. I think it's like 85%. Um, you know, guys that have taken them down. I mean, who is it? Masvidal. We usually, when Masvidal takes your back, he's finishing dudes. And he didn't do that with, with my, I mean, with um, Masvidal, which tells you his ground game is very underrated. You know, um, I think it's going to be a great matchup. If it was me, I would wait to throw those kicks later in the rounds, you know, and maybe round four or five, if it makes it that far. Does Masvidal's power carry from 155 to 170? You know what? The guy does hit pretty hard. I mean, it, that's what's crazy about the striking game. Like, I, the, one of the, the hardest I've ever been hit was from a 125-pound man, you know? So it, it, it really doesn't matter how big you are. I mean, it, there, there is, you know, I think it carries over a little bit, but to really get power and snap in your punches, you don't have to be that big. And Majidal, you know, he's got some crazy knockouts out there. I think Usman has six, but I think he only has two in the UFC. So when it comes to knockout capability, I think uh, Masvidal has got the upper hand with that. I think he's more precise. He's a better counter striker. I think he's faster than Usman. And Usman's usually, I, th- I see him just using the jab and doing what he usually does, back his guy up against the opponent, lays on him um, up against the cage, tire him out. And you see high-level wrestlers do that. I mean, George St. Pierre was one of the best 
You see him fight any high-level striker. He's getting the, getting them to the cage, wearing them out a little bit, especially their arms. And he starts when they, once he lets them off, they're definitely a lot slower. And now, you know, Usman or GSP is able to 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 you know strike with them. So I swear that's I think that's a game plan I see Usman using. I don't see him sitting there and trying to strike like he did against Colby. Seems like that would be a mistake if he did. All right, very quickly, let's go to the co-main event. Uh, Volkanovski taking the title from him. Six months later, they're rematching. I just feel like Volk. I mean, we all know how talented Max is, and everybody loves him. I just feel like people aren't properly giving Volkanovski his due. What do you make of this matchup here six months later than the first time? I agree with you there. Uh, Volkanovski definitely is, you know, he's a, he's a very, very high-level striker, good wrestler. He's got a, he's got an amazing ground game, and you know, I think he you know he's a, he's a great champ, and he definitely beat um, uh, Max Holloway. Now Max, he's he is a very competitive guy. I mean, how many times has has he lost since he's gotten the title, right? So I right. know he's going to go back and make some change. From what I hear, though, I hear he's kind of been doing his own thing in quarantine. That that's kind of the rumor. I I, I think I, I don't know if I'm. If, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think he's got any sparring in as from, from what I'm hearing. But um, the guy's the guy's coming back for some blood for sure. I mean, he's a good buddy of mine. I know he was up for the, the NMF title for a while there. <laughs> but uh, uh, I I would love to see Max bring it back for sure. I would love to see him bring it back. But Volkanovski is a very tough opponent. And uh, I, hopefully – you know, Max Holloway has made some changes, and you're going to see a different uh, Max Holloway out there this Saturday. And then last but not least, Peter Yan and Jose Aldo. Aldo surprising some people, even though he lost against Marlon Marais. But Peter Yan is a completely different challenge than Marais. How do these two match up in your mind? Um, well, you know, when it comes to Jose Aldo, you know, if if – I don't know what's going on with him. Uh, the last few fights, he, he, he hasn't stuck to his game, but he hasn't been throwing a whole lot of like, he usually breaks guys down with his leg kicks, right? You know, back when he fought Uriah Faber, I mean, Uriah Faber had to be wheelchaired out of, out of the, 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 the octagon. So, you know, if he goes back to his old ways and just fires those leg kicks. So now Peter Young is, is, is more of a boxer. So I think he's, the type of guy that's going to stand right in front of you and try and outbox you, which is going to leave, you know, Jose Aldo a chance to, 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 you know, use his leg kicks to start slowing him down. Um, and it, it, even better if he's able to use those low calf kicks, I'm pretty sure the technique of 2019 was the low calf kick. I mean, everybody's starting to use them now. And um, if he's got that in his back pocket in, in his arsenal, I think Peter Jan's going to have a rough night. But we've only seen him fight, I believe, one time at 135, right? I think Jose Aldo, or maybe twice. I think it's once, right? Um, I think, yep. So, so I'm anxious to see. I think he did very well stamina-wise. I'm just anxious to see how well he's going to do, you know, power-wise, dropping down to that weight. You know, um, Peter Young's a very strong opponent. He's very powerful. I've seen some high-level guys try to take him down, and they just, you know, he just fights him off using his brute strength. Um, if, if Jose Aldo goes out there and uses his leg kicks, I think he's going to have to win for sure. All right. Well, I can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see you back in the cage as well, Stephen. Take care of the little ones and yourself and enjoy the fights tomorrow night, my friend. Thank you so much. Anytime, my brother. You have a good one, man. Have a good one. Bye-bye. There he, there he is. Nicest person in all of MMA. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.